All right, Acts chapter 25 and 26. I'm just basically going to read those two chapters and then we'll be done. No, not really, but almost. It's a lot of stuff here. Okay. Let me pray before we get going here. Our great God, we just uh, thank you for your word. And we thank you for these great men that uh, wrote the scriptures for us. And we just uh, appreciate Luke and how you led him and inspired him to put together such wonderful content for us. It's hard to escape if we pay attention to the, the word of God. And we ask for you to bless our time and uh, apply this to us because there's something for us to learn here. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so, you know, Acts has 28 chapters. We're in chapter 25. So Luke is moving us towards the end of his book. So 25 and 26 really is sort of a milestone moment, in both in terms of how the gospel is reaching higher and higher um, people in the culture, you know, top people. And today they go to the very top. But also in terms of how the gospel... Um, not just how high the gospel reaches, but the, the content of the gospel. So all through the book of Acts, Luke has been, we've heard sermons and, you know, there's different aspects of the great truth of Christ coming and what it means for us. And the, some parts have a little bit of this and some parts have a little bit of that. Some parts have more than others. And then when we get down to here, it's kind of all there. I mean, it's just, uh, Luke is feeding us doctrine as we're reading a story. And I think Luke... Uh, one of his main purposes for the book of Acts was for people that weren't Christians to be able to read the story of the foundation of the church, but as they are reading it, he's teaching doctrine all the way through, and so we're coming to that here in a really special way. The, the truths of the gospel are coalescing in a, in a pretty detailed uh, testimony that Paul is going to give before some very important people. So last time we left Paul in Roman custody in the city of Caesarea. Caesarea was on the coast of Israel and um, it was the center of Roman power in the Middle East. So uh, that's where the governor sat, that's where the soldiers mainly were, and that's where administration was. And Romans living in that part of the world kind of gathered there. It was a very Roman-like city in the way things were conducted there. So um, that's where Paul is being held in custody. He really shouldn't have been there at all. Um, there was a hearing with the governor that, that, that included Paul's accusers from Jerusalem. There were no witnesses that came to that hearing uh, against Paul. The charges were religious, basically, in nature, and they had nothing to do with Rome. But we learned last time that Governor Felix, though he would not hand a citizen of Rome over to the Jewish authorities, because he could have gotten in trouble with Rome for doing that, but he did want the support of the high priest. So what's he going to do? He, he's got a citizen. He's got to protect his rights. He wants to make the high priest happy and be on good terms with the Jewish leadership. So he's not going to give Paul over, but he's also not going to let him go. He basically just says, I'll make a decision at some point, And it ends up being two years without a decision. So Paul is in custody in the what they call the Praetorium, sort of the main headquarters of the Roman government and uh, in Caesarea, but he's never allowed to leave. He is given kind of a light custody. He's not in a dungeon. He's not chained to a wall somewhere and fed beans or something. He, he's got a little bit of freedom. People can come and see him. 
Um, there's, there's lots they can do. Now, if you were Paul and you were stuck someplace for two years, what do you think he was doing? <laughs> yeah, sharing the gospel with all of these Romans, right? So he's going to have soldiers around him all the time and he's going to be interacting with other people that are passing through that are just interested in who he might be, this particular prisoner, because he's not confined in a cell. He's got a little bit of movement and things like that. So he's going to share the gospel. And uh, he also could direct ministries from there. He could write letters from there. People could visit him and spend time with him. So his team could come and see him and he could give direction and counsel and guidance. So it's not like nothing's going on. He's just not on the mission field where his heart would be. So he can't, he can't do that. But everything else he basically can do. Sometimes God limits really effective leaders so that other people will rise up. And uh, one thing we learned, I think um, we can apply that to ourselves is when wonderful people are moving on, we can rise up and fill their positions and start to learn to do some of the things that they did and take care of God's church as well. And so I think Paul is actually, I think in God's providence, Paul's in custody and off the field for two years so other people will, will take stand up and keep the work going. And they did. They did do that. So all of that's part of what's going on here. But after two years, there's a change of governors. So at the very end of Acts 24, it says after two years had passed, verse 27, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. That's how we found out that Felix just held on to him for those two years. But Festus is coming in now, a new governor. So maybe now things are going to change, right? So Fortunately, we have secular sources to tell us when Festus took over, and it was in A.D. 59. So we can definitely put a stamp on the date for the story that we're going to be looking at in chapter 25 and chapter 26. It happened in A.D. 59. That's 26 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So the first thing Festus does when he arrives in Caesarea is he takes a trip to Jerusalem. So he kind of settles in for a couple of days and then he goes to Jerusalem. Why would he go to Jerusalem? Well to get to know the high priest and the Jerusalem council. I mean that's, those are the people he's going to have to be working with and dealing with. So he's, he's making a good wise choice as a governor to go there and spend time with them, get to know them, build relationships with them. So chapter 25 verse 1 Festus then, having arrived in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And guess what's on the mind of the Jerusalem leadership after two years? <laughs> this Paul guy. We want to talk about Paul. <laughs> he probably had no idea anything about him, what's going on. Verse 2, the chief priest and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul. So he goes to Jerusalem while he's there. Paul's still in Caesarea in custody. But they're saying, we want to talk about this guy, Paul. They were urging him, verse 3, requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. <laughs> so remember they were plotting to kill Paul when they were going to take him to Caesarea two years earlier. They had 40 guys that swore they wouldn't eat until Paul was dead. Now those guys are looking pretty emaciated by this time. No. They, they, they probably did end up eating, but, uh, but the plot is still there. They still want to kill Paul, so now the plan is if they bring him back, we'll kill him on the way. We'll jump whatever guard they have and kill Paul on the way. That's how intense this hatred for the Apostle Paul was from the leadership in Jerusalem. So the assassination plot is still on, still on. So uh, there is a new high priest, however. Ananias uh, has been replaced with a man named Ishmael. 
and he was probably in on the plot against Paul two years before. We don't know that for a fact, but he probably would have been part of the leadership team. Now he's the high priest. Festus may not know why Paul, uh, why they want Paul in Jerusalem because he just got there. But uh, he's ready to address the matter. So um, he already knows something about Paul. Verse 4 says, Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea, that he himself was about to leave shortly. He's going to go back to Caesarea. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. So he says, okay, you come back to Caesarea with me. Bring some of your top people and let, lay the charges out and I will listen to the case there. Now he's got a problem. He's got um, kind of a double-edged sword he's dealing with here. A Roman citizen has been held without judgment for two years. He's obligated to fix that situation. So he knows he needs to do that. That has to be corrected. But he doesn't want to offend the Jewish leadership either. He doesn't want to offend them and get on their bad side right away if this is important to them. So basically he has a let's just get this done kind of attitude about it. let's take care of this situation. So the, a new trial takes place in Caesarea but it's mainly a rehash of the first trial. If you look at verse 6 it says after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them he went down to Caesarea and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal. So as soon as he gets back the next day they're going to have this trial and ordered Paul to be brought. Verse 7 after Paul arrived the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him bringing many and serious charges against him which they could not prove. So it's pretty much the same stuff probably. Paul is the leader of a sect, a weird sect. He's desecrated the temple and he's a pest. That was one of the, those were the three charges earlier that we saw last time. So Paul just points out there's no proof for any of this. You, that you still don't have any witnesses that you have with you. Verse 8, Paul said in his own defense, I've committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the te- temple or against Caesar. So, uh, the same thing he said two years before. I'm innocent regarding Jewish law. I'm a keeper of the law. I'm innocent regarding the temple. I love the temple. I was worshiping in the temple when these guys grabbed me. He's certainly not a threat to Rome or public order because uh, he hasn't done anything. It's, if there's any disorder, it's from the other side. But because Paul's a citizen here, Festus is going to be really careful. He, do, he doesn't want to get on the bad side of Jewish leadership, but he doesn't want to hand over Paul unwillingly because Paul has rights as a Roman citizen so he can't do that to him. So he asks him, verse 9, Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor so he's trying to get Paul to go to Jerusalem and have his trial there. Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? He says I'll go too. We'll go down there all of us and then the trial will be there. Paul has to kind of agree to this based on his, his rights to be legally tried in a different venue. So you can kind of picture Paul at the trial and he's kind of looking over at the, the Jewish leaders and they're like, yes, come to Jerusalem, you know. So um, he's probably not, he probably picks up on this as something he doesn't want to do. It is a chance to settle everything and it's also a chance to die for Jesus, but uh, Jesus already told him he's going to Rome, so he's, uh, he's not planning on dying quite yet. Uh, so verse 10, Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I've done no wrong to the Jews as you know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of these things is true which these men accuse me of, no one can hand me over to them. Then he says, add Caesarium 
provoco, which means I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. The most fundamental right of Roman citizenship was you could appeal to Caesar and they would hear your case in Rome. Better Nero than the Sanhedrin. That's how Paul thinks. Now we, th- we could think looking back from a modern point of view, Nero's preferable to the Sanhedrin. Nero, the slaughterer, the burner of Christians, the, the monster, the guy that uh, killed all these people, the insane emperor. Well, in AD 59, Nero was fairly new to the office and he wasn't, nobody knew that he was crazy yet. He, in fact, he was pretty well behaved and was actually doing some good things at this point. So Nero was raised, um, his mother had him tutored by Seneca who was a great Roman statesman and a philosopher and a a, a wise man, truly a wise man and um, he kind of was his main advisor and also there was another advisor that he had, Sextus Africanus Burrus who was a really honorable man and he led the Praetorian Guard so he had these two top guys that were always close to Nero who pretty much counseled him on what to do because he was a very young man. So um, we think of him as a monster but he wasn't a monster yet. That really didn't start until AD 65. That's when Rome burned, there was the great fire and he blamed the Christians and burned the Christians and tortured them to death and went crazy. Now it it is true in AD 59 he did murder his mother. Um, (laughs) So there were signs of problems. Uh, at that earlier stage, but uh, he, in AD 65 he also ordered Seneca to kill himself. So um, he was killing his own counselors, he was killing his mom, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So Nero uh, did kind of wig out after a while. But his reputation for being a totally depraved insane person hadn't started yet. So Paul would think it natural to appeal to Caesar. It wasn't that crazy of an idea for him to do that, to go before Nero. I mean, like I said, none of that. All they pretty much heard was good things about him. He lowered taxes. See, when Seneca and and, uh, Sextus were counseling Nero, he lowered the taxes. He actually made a law that slaves could sue cruel masters, which was pretty unusual for a pagan Rome to do that kind of a kind of a thing. And he, he, there were other good laws that they passed as well. They reduced the number of capital offenses. So there were, there were some real reforms that Nero did in those early years under Seneca's uh, counsel and, and help. But then he wigged out, started killing people and doing really strange things. So Paul appeals to Rome. That actually solves Festus's problem because he could tell the high priest, hey, it's out of my hands now. Once a guy appeals to Rome, he's got to go to Rome. So he stays on their good things. And as far as Paul is, I, he's going to Rome. So I'm all done with this baby. The, he only had one problem. He had one problem. What am I going to tell the emperor? So he's got to write some kind of a letter or some kind of official report to say, we want you to examine this guy, Paul, for this reason. And it's got to be some kind of a real reason or else they're going to think bad about him. And he's really having a hard time with it because all the charges against him from the Jews was, was religious stuff and Rome doesn't care about that kind of stuff. So he's trying to figure out what's he going to say in that thing. So it turns out there's a state visit that uh, the king of part of Syria comes to see him, Herod Agrippa II. And he's a guy that knows all the laws of that area, who's been, had a lot of experience there, was raised in Rome, but has lived in um, Palestine for a long time. And he might understand the situation better than he could. So he's coming to visit, verse 13. When several days had elapsed, so this is a state visit. So he's coming to see the new governor, the, the King Agrippa II. And so King Agrippa and Bernice, or Berenice, she's sometimes called, arrived at Caesarea 
and paid their respects to Festus. So this Herod, there's a lot of Herods in the New Testament, this Herod is the grandson of Herod the Great who built the temple, who slaughtered the innocents when Jesus was born. He's the son of Herod Agrippa who killed James the Apostle in Acts chapter 12 and also he's the one that when everybody was calling him a god and kind of accepted worship from everybody he just dropped dead on the spot like God killed him. Acts chapter 12 that story is told. Also in history that's actually a historical event. And Herod, um, so this is Herod Agrippa II. It's another guy. He lived with his sister and the Jews always suspected there was something kind of unproper un about that relationship there. Something kind of weird. There was rumors, you know. But by AD 59, uh, Berenice, his, his um, sister, had outlived two husbands and she'd left a third husband. Eventually, uh, a few years after this, when the Jewish war started in AD 66, Berenice becomes the mistress of the Roman general Titus who comes to destroy Israel. So um, it's really interesting these lives and how they all get intertwined in all of these events. And Herod Agrippa II, because of the Jewish war, would be the last ruler of the Herods. He would be the last one. He was totally pro-Roman and that did not sit well with his people. So right now, AD 59, um, he's here so Festus can ask for his advice. Verse 14. While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him. Not of such crimes as I was expecting, verse 19, but they simply had some points of disagreement about him, with, about their own religion, and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Wouldn't that sound strange to him? Verse 20, being at a loss as how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to, appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered, ordered him to be kept in custody until I sent him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, well, I would also like to hear from him myself. Now, think about this. Paul has stood before the high priest of Israel, he stood before the great council of Israel, he has stood before two Roman governors now, and now he's going to stand before a king, Agrippa II. So he will give his testimony. And this is how Luke sort of sets the scene there in verse 23. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium accompanied by commanders and prominent men of the city, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. A king, his royal sister, at least five kiliarchs, which could be Roman tribunes, commanders of large garrisons, and the, all the prominent men of the most Roman city in the Holy Land. These people would all be connected with empire building people. So it's a parade of, of rich splendor, the, the wealthy, the powerful, the elite of the ancient world. It's interesting that Luke mentions the pomp. He specifically mentions that they came in with great pomp, right? It's like a, dun, 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 you know, whatever's going, whatever they did in those days to kind of announce the kings coming in and all this grandness and um, what a contrast these people with Paul. He's been in prison, 
chained for two years, you know, and a uh, simple man, a poor man, and and here all the VIPs are there, the very important people are situated, and Festus, he starts telling them his problem, verse 24. Festus said, King Agrippa, and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate all the charges against him. Exactly so. So it's 25, chapter 25 now, verse 1. Paul is given a totally open door to speak. What do you think he's going to speak about? (laughs) Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Thank you, sir. I'm sure he's thinking. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. Here he goes. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider self fortunate, King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense before you today especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The speech is very much like the one he started to give to the crowd back in chapter 22 when he's at the top of the stairs and he's going to make this big speech and give his testimony and they all freaked out when he talked about uh, the resurrection of Christ and all that. So um, he never got to finish that one. This time he's going to get to finish and he's aiming at King Agrippa. He's aiming at him who will understand the background of what's going on, the the laws that are relevant to that, the theological points that he's making. So before all that he starts with his personal background, he gives his lineage. Verse 4, so then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, from which, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of my religion. And now I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as yet they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Which is a good question. So he's under arrest for believing what good Jews, especially Pharisees, are supposed to believe. That God does and will fulfill his promises to Israel. That he promised a savior from of old. That he has now fulfilled that promise and confirmed it by raising the Messiah from the dead. That's what he's basically saying here. So God raised up Jesus to demonstrate that he really was our Messiah when there was a question about that but so many people were following him and other people doubted and other people were rioting and then they killed him and all of that but God raised him from the dead. Why should that be so unexpected that God could raise the dead? He's just saying it's happened. It happened in our day. It happened in our time. The Messiah came and you killed him and God showed that he was the Messiah by raising him from the dead. Why is that so hard to believe? And this and now Paul's going to tell his story relating to Christianity because he didn't believe it. See this is the connection. Why is that hard to believe? Well I didn't believe it either. 
I didn't believe it either. Verse 9. He says, I can, I can totally relate to not believing it. I was blind myself. So then, I thought to myself that I had many things hostile. I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. He just wants them all to know that that's what he was doing. That's who he was. I was as bad as the high priest is being today. He said, I was part of all of that. I totally was in that. And I wanted to stamp out Christianity too. I hated Jesus. And I hated anybody that followed Jesus. But then, verse 12, While so engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice say to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now wouldn't it be great to see the faces of the VIPs in that room while he's saying all of this? I mean, this is his personal experience. Verse 16, Jesus is speaking, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, and here's where the gospel comes in. And Luke gives a really comprehensive grasp of what the gospel is all about. To open their eyes. This is Paul. I'm appearing to you to put you into service. To open their eyes. That they may turn from darkness to light. And from the dominion of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. And an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That's Jesus speaking. So verse 18 is just another really excellent summary of the gospel. This is what Jesus came to do out of his own lips, the risen Christ, to open people's eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Where are people? Where is the world? It's in darkness. It's in darkness. Whose reign are people under? Who do, who do they follow? What, what system are they following? Well, it's Satan's. They serve Satan. That doesn't mean everybody's a Satanist or, you know, casting spells over pentagrams or anything like that and doing all that. We're just born and raised in this rebellious world. We are tied to that world and we're, we're, we have it in us. It's part of human nature. When our first parents fell, their fallen condition passed on to us and we are naturally inclined against God, which is all Satan wants. His kingdom is about being anti-God. It's not anything else. You don't have to worship Satan. You don't have to be a, a witch or a sorcerer or a Nazi or anything like that. You just can go along in your merry life against God and not doing what God wants you. That's all you have to do and you're in Satan's kingdom. And we're all bent that way. We're born bent that way. We're participants. And that's why we sin and we love sin. 
It's a kingdom of spiritual darkness. We're born in it, we're raised in it, we can't escape it because we carry it inside of us. Our very nature is bent towards sin. So Jesus came to do what? To turn us from darkness to light and to lead us out of Satan's kingdom to God, to the living God. Our very nature is transformed when he does that. We get forgiveness of sins he says and an inheritance and the inheritance is eternal life in Christ's kingdom. We'll live forever in Christ's kingdom. That is good news. So if you want God's forgiveness, if you recognize your own darkness and the reality of your corrupted nature which does break forth into actual real sins that we commit, then you have to have Jesus. You need Jesus. He's the only one that took the penalty of our sins onto himself. Nobody else has done that. There might be many wise men and philosophers and religious leaders down through the ages, but none of them bore your sins. And none of them could change your nature. Only Christ could do that. He's the one who took the penalty of sin. So forgiveness and eternal life are in him. Did you know that eternal life is not based on how worthy you are? Did you know that? I hope you know that. If you're counting on getting to heaven and standing before the Lord and saying, I am so worthy, I should just, you just let me open that door for me. <laughs> Don't plan on saying that. A lot of people actually think they're going to say something like that. I'm a good person. I paid my taxes. I took care of my kitties. All of those things. What qualifications are actually required? Well, you remember back in Acts 6, 16, the Philippian jailer actually asked Paul. That was one of those great moments of gospel moments. What must I do to be saved, he said. And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Remember that? The same answer here, the last part of verse 18. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me, Jesus says. By faith in me. Those are his words. The object of faith, the thing you're putting your faith in, is a person. And it's Jesus Christ. So now these words, guys, are being heard by a king and a queen consort almost, you know, his sister, a pr very prominent and a well-placed woman, a governor, tribunes of the Roman army, and many prominent Roman men, leaders of the city. They're all there listening to Paul share this story. Verse 19, so King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and then also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So there's the repentance part of saving faith. See Luke has dropped these things all through the book of Acts but now he's bringing them all together. It's very comprehensive. Not just for these hearers but for us if we're reading the book. We're getting it all here right before the end of the book. We're, we're getting all of it. Okay so faith verse 18 repentance verse 20. Remember we called we did a whole lesson on repentance and faith as inseparable graces we call them. That's in theology that's what they call that. Repentance and faith they're both necessary. They're two sides of the same coin. You have to have both. You're turning from something to something. You, if you're turning to Christ, you're turning away from something. What are you turning away from? Sin. So you're repenting of sin. I, I, went the, I was going the wrong way. Now I'm going to go with you. I reject what I was. I'm, I'm pursuing you now. I'm going to be your servant. I'm going to serve Jesus Christ. 
So repentance means turning to God and letting anti-God things go, right? If you believe in Jesus as Lord, if you really believe he's your Lord, then something very deep in you is going to desire to honor him. And we often fail, don't we? But we grieve those failures because, wow, I'm not doing everything I could for you. I'm blowing it. I'm displeasing you and that hurts me and because I, I know it hurts you and that's, that's how a Christian relates and thinks. So Paul says he obeyed Jesus by sharing this good news of salvation. Verse 21, he says his obedience to Jesus' command is what got him arrested. For this reason some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So he's telling that whole gospel thing and he says and it's for that that they, they arrested me and they want to kill me. It's for that. It's for that message. Then verse 22, here's how he concludes. So, having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying to both the small and the great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. That the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and the Gentiles. Another clear statement of the resurrection of Jesus, the risen Jesus. The very beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1 verse 7, Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses, the witnesses of the resurrection here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. Here we're getting to the remotest parts of the earth again. Well, we follow Paul doing that. And here he's giving the whole thing. Witnesses of the resurrection. And here's Paul bearing witness to the resurrection. An apostle is somebody I mean, that has been specifically chosen by Christ, but one of the qualifications for being an apostle is you had to have seen him risen. You had to be a personal eyewitness of his resurrection. That's why anybody today that calls themselves an apostle is not an apostle. But these guys are apostles, and Paul was the last one. So, um, Luke is just sharing all of these great truths. He's making sure we as readers get to hear all of these great truths. So now we have this detailed record of Paul's words to the great men of the world. And it's a really a comprehensive explanation of the gospel. What a blessing to have it all here in one place. Well, Governor Felix is kind of freaking out while he's hearing this. Festus, I mean, is this Festus. He gives a very Roman sort of response. Now, you know, we think of the Romans as pagans. Your typical educated upper class Roman citizen person, the kind of person that would become a governor, didn't really believe in the gods. I mean, they were pretty secular and they, they didn't think miracles happened or anything like that. They didn't believe the, the old legends about Zeus and all that. Uh, publicly they had to acknowledge all that. They offered sacrifices and did all that stuff. Personally they were pretty cynical by this, by the first century. That was pretty normal. But anyway, he kind of bursts out here in verse 24. The resurrection just seems so crazy to him. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Now Paul's preached to Gentiles for many years. And he even preached to the philosophers in Athens. So this isn't going to throw him. He's not shaken by Festus saying this stuff. He just goes from Festus to the king. Herod would know the stories about Jesus for one thing. It's only 26 years after the resurrection. So the crucifixion and resurrection. So Herod knows these stories. It wasn't that long ago. 
And even if Herod wasn't personally present, because he was raised in Rome as a young man, but um, Paul says, verse 25, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I er utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak with him also, with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Jesus was famous. Before him, John the Baptist was famous. Everybody knew about him. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes about John the Baptist. He writes about Jesus. These people were famous. Jesus was known everywhere in that land. You couldn't, you couldn't be a ruler in Syria and say, Oh, Jesus, I never heard of Jesus. That, that, that wouldn't happen. Those stories would have been going on f for decades. And he also probably would have known about Christianity somewhat. Anyway, Paul says in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. So he has a reputation for being a believer in the Old Testament. If the king knows the prophets and the many stories about Jesus and he hears Paul's experience, it's not going to be madness to him that these things could be true. It will be life to him, actually, if he would just submit himself to, the, to Christ, to come to Jesus. Verse 28, Agrippa replied to Paul. Now this sentence is a much discussed sentence among Bible students because it's hard to translate. So this is, how my, this is how the New American Standard says it. Your Bible might say it differently. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. I think the King James Version says, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. So he's like really thinking it through, sounds like. Other translations translate it differently. Um, some make it sound negative, like, it's, uh, like he's attacking Paul. Uh, there's a Christian Standard Bible, which is sort of the Southern Baptist translation of the Bible, and there he says, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? <laughs> and then on the NIV, if you've got an NIV, I know some of you have it, it says, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? It's kind of got a negative flavor to it. What, you really think you're going to convince me? Th that sort of tone to it. And it's, frankly, it's really hard to translate this sentence because he uses cryptic words and the translators are kind of supplying words. The actual phrase he says is, you won't mean anything to you, but N, uh, which is like in, and uh, oligo. We use um, oli in some English words like oligarchy. You know that, you ever know that an oligarchy, there's a monarchy, a king rules. Oligarchy is the rule by a few. So Russia is a modern oligarchy. Very few super wealthy people that are tied to Vladimir Putin run Russia. They all, most people call it an oligarchy. So that would be one place where Ali kind of comes in. So Ali means few. It can mean little. It can mean um, short. It's, it's used in different ways. But that's all he says. He says in short, in, in few. In a few. A few what? Well that's where we have to kind of, the translator kind of has to supply that. So it could be time. Uh, it could be and the idea of almost, it could be that, or it could be in few words. Uh, it just doesn't say that. So everybody's trying to kind of wrestle with this thing. It's too bad because I wish we had it a little clearer, but Luke just wrote down what he said. So I think Paul's answer moves us more in the direction of a, a short amount of time. Um, Paul doesn't use the word time, but um, that's 
but I don't think it's negative. I don't think he's being negative, and I think we see that as this moves forward here. And Paul's answer is really beautiful. You can hear his heart in it. Verse 29, Paul says, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long, and then my Bible puts time in there, but that word is not in the Greek text. It's just assuming that that's what he said in the previous thing. Whether short or long, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains, he says. I wish you would all could be what I am, a follower of Jesus, a, a forgiven person, a person that's been born again, a person that has an inheritance in the kingdom of God through faith in Christ. I wish all of you could become that. And every Christian should wish that for everyone they know. And here's Paul, this poor man, this rabbi who's been on the mission field for years and years and has nothing, standing before all these great men and saying, I wish you could become as I am. Because they have no inheritance in eternal life. They have nothing after this life for them except damnation. And he knows that. They don't know it. They're just strutting around, throwing their power around, their wealth around. But he says, I wish you could be like me, except for the chains. I don't want you to have to be in bondage like I am. But other than that, I wish you were like me. It's really a beautiful thing to say. The poor prisoner before the world's elites, the, the lost elites, the dark elites. He cares about them. He cares about them. So here's just that image itself makes Christianity so unique and special for some poor person to talk to the the elites of the world in the first century and say say that I want you to be like me is is such a dramatic change in the whole way the world is viewed. The rich and the powerful people aren't the important people. We call them VIPs, very important people. They're not important people. The important people are people like Paul, as poor as he was, who know God, who know the maker of the universe, who've been saved by the savior of the world that God sent into the world. Those are the important people. And Paul wishes every man and woman to know the saving grace of Jesus. We should all want that. Because we know how undeserving we are of God's grace. So we know they're undeserving too. You know, I've said many times that the sharing the gospel with somebody is telling, uh, 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 is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That really is what it, you're doing. That's why you never come to people with some kind of arrogant attitude. And it's crazy when Christians act like that because how dare we? But hey, I found this and you can have it too. It's for everybody. Salvation from your sins. There's a savior that God sent into the world. We know who he is. So we want everybody to know the love of God. Not some syrupy kind of love, you know, just some kind of good feeling kind of love, but love that took Jesus to the cross, that kind of love. We want everybody to know that kind of love. The love that bears sin, the love that satisfies the holy wrath of God by dying in the place of other people, the love that makes servants of darkness turn into children of God, that kind of love. That's the kind of love we want everybody to know. Paul wants all men to know redemptive love, God's love, the kind of love that gives oneself. And he wants the king to know it. And he wants the king's slaves to know it. And he wants those rich Romans to know it. And he wants those military commanders to know it. He wants them all to know it. They all have equal need of it, just as we do. It's hard to say if Herod Agrippa is, is from the text there, is ruminating on how this profound thing that Paul is saying and saying you almost persuade me or if he's being sarcastic there 
I think he's being more on the thoughtful side. Like, you know, you've almost, you almost got me there. It, you know, what you're saying makes sense to me in certain ways. But just from history, we have no indication that he ever acted on that, that he became a Christian, which I hope he did. How tragic if, if King Herod would say, you almost persuade me, and then gets caught up in other things and forgets about it. That would be tragic. That would be tragic. Almost is the difference between life and death. It literally is. You almost persuade me to be a Christian. You're either in the kingdom of Jesus or you're out of the kingdom of Jesus. It's really, there's no middle ground there. There's no other place. You can't sit on a fence. You're out or you're in. So make sure you're in, everybody. <laughs> make sure you're in. Don't put it off. Don't be shut out of the kingdom of Christ. Make, make sure you're not almost a Christian. It's pretty easy to be almost a Christian. You can be in a church for years and be almost a Christian. But not a Christian. Well the last verses just reflect a, a brief conversation between Festus and Agrippa. And this conversation makes me think Agrippa's response to Paul is mainly positive. Because it he's, actually sounds like he's more concerned for Paul here. So verse 30 after all that, after God, Paul finishes his testimony and says what he said at the end there. The king stood up and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them and when they had gone aside, so the governor and the king are kind of walking off to the side talking, saying this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. So they're all sort of feeling that way. The consensus seems to be that Paul is a sincere religious person, maybe crazy, as, as Festus probably thinks, but he's committed no crime. So then verse 32, Agrippa said to Festus, and this is our last word from him, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. That sounds positive to me. So I think, I think he's reflecting on Paul as somebody special, as maybe a, a prophet kind of person or something like that. But he's not doing anything about it as far as we know. I sure hope we see Herod Agrippa II in heaven. But I don't know that. But he's a little sorry for Paul not being freed. And that ends the chapter. And in chapter 27, uh, the next chapter, we're going to go to sea. Luke loves to get on the ocean. And he's actually going to. It starts a new we section in the book of Acts. So Paul is going to go to Rome with Luke on the sea. And it turns out to be a crazy adventure in Acts chapter 27. So we'll look at that next time okay let's pray and then we'll prepare our hearts for the Lord's table all right our great God we're so thankful that as we partake of your table now taking to ourselves the very signs of your sacrifice to purchase our salvation we ask you to renew our own love for other people that they too might know you You've given us so much in Christ. Never let us keep it for ourselves. Nor be ashamed of it. Nor be embarrassed about it. But let us spread the good news of what you've done. Some people might call us mad. But other people might listen. And that's what matters. We pray you'd use us and work through us as you work through Paul on this particular day. In his name we pray. Amen.